Hey everybody, welcome to the Fearless Paranoia podcast where we are busy demystifying the complex world of cybersecurity. I'm Brian, the cybersecurity attorney. And I'm a cybersecurity architect and I go by Ryan. He goes by. He goes around, he goes through. Let's be honest. Okay, so we've got an interesting one today. There is a cybersecurity company that is known widely around the world as one of the best in the world at what they do. Kaspersky Cybersecurity. They are, let's say, nominally based in Russia, but their founding officer, Eugene Kaspersky, is a well-known and incredibly highly regarded cybersecurity expert. Now, since... Putin started meddling in foreign elections more overtly and directly starting in 2015. Kaspersky has been declared by many Western governments to be an agent and tool of the Russian government. I personally don't hold the same opinion of them, at the very least of some of their most popular tools and of their research. Kaspersky research is probably some of the best and most informative cybersecurity research that I've found in all of my time as a cybersecurity attorney. They have great publications that are well-researched, that are well-thought-of, that are peer-reviewed, and that are accessible to people who don't have a PhD in computer science. And I think that's pretty important. We're going to be talking about something that happened to the Kaspersky Research Group. Ryan, before we talk any further about the event, I do want to, you know, that's my opinion, and I'm a cybersecurity attorney. I'm not nearly in this industry as much as you are. Does my opinion of Kaspersky hold water? Is that something you share? Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. I think that there's been, obviously, a lot of additional scrutiny in previous years over Kaspersky, but I think it's primarily tied to the fact that they're Russian-based, not necessarily because of anything they've done in particular, because of any connections or associations that they have. I think it's just kind of a general scrutiny based on just geolocation. So I think that outside of that, they've been highly respected. They produce good software. I am still aware of certain American companies that I've worked with in the past that still use it at the enterprise level. So I think that they're still pretty widely sought after. You know, they're well thought of throughout the industry. And I think that it's it's primarily the U.S. government and some of their other kind of partner governments around the world that have taken kind of a poor view of their standing. And I think it's primarily just due to geopolitical tensions in general. That's, of course, not to say that. I mean, Russia has passed a number of laws since 2015, sequestering their own internet, requiring any companies that want to do business over the internet with them have offices in Russia so that essentially they can have personnel who are able to be held personally responsible for actions of the company, various things like that. There are certainly things that being located in Russia make you potentially vulnerable and susceptible to. But at least as far as I'm aware, there's no evidence that the Russian government has as of yet taken any of those steps with Kaspersky, correct? Yeah, I haven't heard anything that's come out officially. I haven't even heard really any major chatter outside of the ultra paranoid, but nothing really to corroborate it or back it up. And that's just, you know, with others in our industry that just kind of speak on the side. But no, I haven't heard any official word that they've done anything to really kind of upset their place in the industry yet. So now that we've established the Kaspersky Research Labs bona fides in how well-respected they are in cybersecurity, and I want to make that point very clear. They are the cybersecurity people. They got hacked and they got hacked, but good. Ryan, you sent me a text message shortly before New Year asking me about what I had heard. Give me a second because I actually want to read the text. You read any news about Operation Triangulation yet? I said, nope. And you said really intense. There were some other words attached there as well, but we can't use them here because otherwise our podcast gets flagged. That was on December 30th. 
Ryan, I got to say, I read the few things that you sent me on what happened and you got to describe it. I can't even do it. Well, just to keep it on the clean side here, freaking intense is an understatement at this point. So this wasn't really a broad hack of Kaspersky altogether as a business. This was kind of a focus from the sounds of it towards a few of their researchers, a highly targeted attack. And it'll become clear as we kind of go through and explain the level of the attack and the level of detail and planning that went into this attack that this was highly targeted. It was meant to be very effective. It was meant to remain quiet because to uncover the whole attack chain would give up a lot of potential secrets, a lot of really good methods for intruding upon people's networks or devices for exfiltrating information. This is some heavy level, I would call this heavy level spy stuff is really, but this one, I mean, I, you know, I'm not trying to go overly technical, I guess there, but really cool spy stuff. Like, I don't think that's an industry term or anything like that. I don't know. I guess it depends on who in the industry you're talking to. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. if you're talking to me, sometimes on certain days, that might be the best you might get anyways. <laughs> but no, so this was dubbed Operation Triangulation, which is a really clever name, but there's no shortage of fun names that have come out for different things in cybersecurity. I think it was actually... Actually, one of the researchers at Sophos back in the day that dubbed them bugs with an impressive name was one of the <laughs> terms they used to use to describe different CVEs and things that came out. But this one in particular was intense. I guess intense is really the, the best description for it. This is a full attack chain. So this isn't just a basic exploit. This isn't finding a single zero day and using it to rip RCE on somebody's system to just get, you know, kernel access really quick and dirty and see what you can implant for other maps where and then drop you know a cobalt strike or a brute or something else on their system for like persistence this was meant to go far beyond that this was meant to take down systems that were highly protected and really get a high level of access and more importantly not just get a high level of access but wipe out the entire methodology of how they went about getting that access so it's a full attack chain that goes in a couple layers plants itself with high privileges wipes out all evidence of the previous layers and and then continues to move on doing validation to make sure that they're catching the right targets so they're not just kind of spam blasting different targets and potentially giving themselves away because obviously the more devices you dump this on the faster somebody's eventually going to see something weird and start looking into it. So it ties in numerous zero days and then validation to me is the most important piece. The validation and the cleanup were the most kind of cool parts about this because if it validated the wrong user it just wouldn't continue to trigger. It would just clean itself up and, and be gone effectively. The thing that's amazing about this to me is this process that it goes through. Now, obviously, you said that there's a lot of different things that were exploited here. And there were four zero-day exploits included in this particular attack. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Let's just start digging into the attack chain. Yeah, let's do there's that. There's quite a few things to talk about, and we don't want to burn up too much time doing it. So it started out with a zero-click iMessage attack, which, of course, is really critical because if you need to get your target to interact with a message or interact with an attachment, in a lot of cases, either high paranoia or high knowledge, well-knowledge targets aren't going to fall for some of those things. I'm not going to say I'm impossible to fish, but I'm probably in my position very difficult to fish because I look for these things all day long. Mm -hmm. More important, if you can come after me with something I don't have to interact with, that's a really good way to start an attack chain. And just so we can explain this, we did discuss this in an earlier episode, and I will link it in the blog post that goes along with this podcast. 
You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilience Cybersecurity and Data Privacy blog. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. Also, please share this podcast with anyone you think would find it helpful or useful. We rely on listeners like you to help get the word out about this show, and we appreciate the support. Now, time for some more cybersecurity. Basically, what you're talking about is a message that if the phone receives it, it's triggered. It immediately triggers, right, just due to the nature of how iMessage works. So again, because it was iMessage, that means that this in particular was targeting Apple devices. Mm -hmm. So anybody that was not an Android device would not have been subject to the level of the attack the way it was. So it shows that they were targeting specific folks. And so zero-click iMessage attack, and it sent across a PDF file as part of that attack. That PDF file had inside it a known zero day for Apple that exploited the true type font. And in particular, there was a specific Apple only font instruction that was loaded into this PDF that was triggered. And that particular TTF allowed remote code execution to occur on the device. A lot of people might not know that fonts these days are as much a program in a computer as anything else. It's not just a typeface. Your computer is not just looking at a list of how letters should look. It's an actual bona fide set of programs. So it is a very exploitable system. Yep. So for the nerds of the world out there, this particular one was CVE 2023-41990. Just in case anyone wants to look this up a little bit and learn a little bit more about the attack chain. So what they did is they used this to execute code on the device. This is where we jump into a couple different sets of code execution that occurred here before the next major exploit came into play. So they used primarily JavaScript from this point on. They were using a return or jump-oriented programming. There was multiple stages written through uh, NS Expression. NS uh, predicate queries. Again, that's getting a little technical, but they were using JavaScript code to both obfuscate what they were doing and to prepare this next exploit, which was a kernel level exploit. The amount of JavaScript here in this particular case was about 11,000 lines of code. So this was no JavaScript header on a website, something basic. This was exploiting really, really heavy detailed code in order to set up the next layer. Well, and one of the things right there that tells you that this is not not your ordinary cyber criminal gang is that the potential for errors and typos in 11,000 lines of code is significant. So that actually gives you, at least right there, a fairly decent idea that this was a serious organization and one that is willing to spend the time and money to be thorough. Yeah, you get the script kiddies of the world. They end up using cracked software and well-known software, usually in its default configuration. Then you'll get some of the more intense like ransomware gangs and the, the initial intrusion actors that will use similar software and similar scripts, but in a much more configured manner, a much more professional-ish manner, or at least a more targeted manner. And then you get stuff like this where it's custom written code. At this level, you're usually looking at nation state level and major APTs. It's very rare to see anybody that's directly financially motivated going to this level because for them it's much easier to just use the things that are out there and just kind of smash and grab and work towards quick exfiltration than it is to set up this kind of level you know this detailed of an exploit and especially trying to cover your tracks usually if you're financially motivated you just want to get in get out grab your things and you're not so worried about being detected at least once you get your not until you get what you're looking for yeah let's be honest one of the biggest reasons why certain organizations aren't financially motivated is is it turns out they don't need to be. Right. Absolutely. So all this JavaScript, all this code was 
basically there and designed to enact this next layer, which was also written in JavaScript. It was a kernel level exploit. What does that mean? What is a kernel level exploit? So kernel is kind of like the most base code that operates on a device. A lot of people will hear about like the Linux kernel, other things. The kernel is kind of the underlying code that operates the phone, that operates like the most basic level functions of the phone. So the kernel is where things like the code on how to transfer files, how to load a program, how to boot the phone, how to do all those really just like basic rudimentary tasks on a device occur. They occur at the kernel level, which means that the kernel almost always runs with the highest level of privilege. It's usually very well protected until something like this pops up, but it is absolutely a place that if you can find a way to execute code at the kernel level, that's equal of like going into a video game in god mode you're basically able to do just about anything you want from kernel level especially if you have full control and that was really the next point here so the next couple cves here for, again for those that want to reference cve 2023 32434 and cve 2023 38606 these were a couple different cves here um i believe both of them are patched at this point not necessarily 100% positive. I guess I'd have to dig into that a little more. Anyone but, who wants to know, I'm just doing the sign of the cross right here. Just. <laughs> so these two here were basically set up to launch a couple of agents and set up the next step of the process. So we're really getting like eight, nine levels into the chain at this point, but really this is kind of the second major stop of five major stops throughout this chain. And the important thing is here, we're talking about attackers who wanted to get highest level authority control over the primary command processor of these Apple devices of people who have serious security on their system. Yep. To even just to get to this point, you're talking about a, a very serious attack. These two here were kind of used, one of them, it used a way to obtain read-write over the memory of the physical memory of the device. And the other one was used to bypass the page protection layer. So together, really what that allowed was it allowed the JavaScript to basically do whatever it wanted on the device, including running spyware, etc. But what the attackers chose to do with this layer, instead of dropping malware or some sort of spyware or anything, was they used it to do two major things. The first one was validate that Safari was available. And the reason that they wanted to validate Safari was available is because the next chain of the attack or the next step in the chain was to use a safari exploit that allowed them to again run as the kernel but at this point not only did they want to validate that the safari exploit was available and get that prepped and ready and staged they also loaded an agent on the device that went through and cleaned all of the previous methods that had been done so clean the pdf file clean the true type font cleaned up the eleven thousand lines of javascript code wiped out basically all of that information all of those steps to really cover their tracks of how they got to this point here. And that's what makes this really, really interesting, kind of cool, extremely dangerous, mm -hmm. and lets us know that this was really a well-crafted and really intense attack and was probably, again, most likely nation-state involved. How... how I mean, we just talked about before about how complex the code, the JavaScript code was that was setting up the kernel level exploit. How difficult is it to put together a cleaner that'll sweep all that away? It seems like it would be, again, you're talking a level of meticulous planning and code writing that would be out of the reach of most. Yeah, so the cleaner itself was probably pretty trivial, right? I mean, they understood all of the steps in the chain. And so really, they're loading on a small tool that is probably written just to go through and clean up those steps they did. So to me, it's like you hit a golf ball in 
into the bunker. You go in and you're going to knock your ball out of the bunker. So now you've set up your safari exploit that next stage. This is just you grabbing the rake and just raking the sand on the way back out to make sure that nobody saw your footprints as you were working your way back out of the bunker, you know? So again, the first exploit was basically there to set up the second exploit. The second exploit is there to set up the third one and to clean up everything that had come before it. So now that they were able to step all the way through to Colonel Privileges, clean up all their tracks before that, and stage the safari exploit, they run a validator to validate that safari's there and to validate at this point that this is the user that they're going after. And so... Okay, so that's an even you know more impressive and critically dangerous aspect of this. Yes, so it does verification of the victim and it checks to make sure that they are going to be able to run the safari exploit. So we move that to the next stage. The safari exploit itself is CVE 2023-32435, which allows them to execute shellcode. What is shellcode? Shellcode itself is like a command line interface on the machine. So it's going to be similar to running like RCE, but again, this is now running locally at this point. There's nothing that's really coming across remotely any longer. So this just runs code not at the kernel level, it's running it at the shell level. So it's running at a system level, which is kind of the next layer up that sits on top the kernel, but usually is highly privileged. And it's something that Safari would potentially have access to is being able to run things as shell, mm-hmm. maybe not directly as kernel. But the Safari exploit being able to run shellcode then allowed them to run the fourth major zero day set in here which was another kernel level exploit so where they already had kernel access before they didn't want to use the initial kernel access because they wanted to be able to hide those previous steps so they use that kernel access to load this and then wipe what was behind them then they use safari to again be able to get to the point where they can run privileged shellcode and then run another kernel level exploit so now they are re-privileging their i'm going to use made up words today elevating privileges again to the kernel level another step there that just tells you very very clearly that the people who put this together were not concerned about a efficiency of movement here because you would say you wouldn't need to re-establish kernel access they were literally willing to give up kernel access in order to hide their point of entry and then set up a new system to get it a different way just in order to ensure they could keep themselves hidden yeah absolutely obfuscation is really important when it comes to trying to uncover attribution so if you want to cover the fact that you were the one that hit the ball into the bunker and had to go in there and chip it out being able to see whose footprints they were would go a long way to being able to tell whose ball was in the bunker right if you're able to actually see the different footprints you can match up the patterns of the soles and the bottom of the shoe or the size of the foot or whatever to really kind of attribute back but if you can go through and properly clean all that it becomes a lot harder to tell you can maybe tell by the rake marks that somebody was in the bunker but you can't necessarily tell exactly who it was and this is very similar to that where they go through and they are trying to obscure all those previous steps so that even if somebody does detect this final kernel exploit and maybe even the safari exploit before it it gets really tough to backtrack further than that and because if you can't track back further than that, now your attribution goes down the road of who knows about these Safari exploits or this particular kernel exploit. Who's got access to these? What forums do they pop up on? Which threat actors are using these? And if they're the only threat actor or group that has access to these, you all of a sudden hit a dead end when the rest of that trail starts to kind of dry up. And so that was absolutely the purpose of this, to have kept under wraps who might be the originator of this particular attack chain. So they use the Safari exploit, the 32435 to then activate another kernel exploit. This is actually two different vulnerabilities in this one. This was CVE 2023-32434 and 38606, which again 
The same ones as before, right? You recognize those numbers. Yep. It's stuff that had come out before. And so they use this kernel exploit to, again, get to the point where you can run as kernel. And then we go through and run another validator to, again, validate that this is a device that they wanted to impact before enacting the final stage, which was to obtain the root privileges and drop malware on the device. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable. So if there are topics or issues that you'd like Ryan and I to break down in an episode, send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn. For more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com where you'll find a full transcript as well as links to helpful resources and any research and reports discussed during the episode. While you're there, check out our other posts and podcasts as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show. So the point of this was to drop various types of malware. And I know that several researchers have listed some things that they believe were dropped by this particular attack. But there was one part about this that I read and I was just like, I don't even know what to say, is that at a certain point, Apple introduced a hardware security feature, hardware-based protection for parts of the kernel. And it prevents attackers from gaining full control over device, even if they're able to read and write to the kernel memory, which is what one of these two exploits was able to do. In order to bypass this hardware-based security security protection, the attackers actually had to use a hardware feature that no one knew about. Yeah, I that's... don't like, I mean, I, this is like, we're not talking about hackers who, I mean, these are hackers basically who stole information from Apple to get, to get some of this information. So, I mean, that's possibly, there's definitely a possibility. You can get lucky. High-level intense reverse engineering might have some opportunities to be able to find these things. It was very clear that one of two things, there was either special knowledge that was gained through some other means that gave them a leg up on being able to find and exploit this type of code in this type of way, or there was an intense amount of resources put into testing and reverse engineering and pen testing and everything. Everything, basically attacking that hardware protection at Apple's layer until they were able to find a way to bypass it. But it's also not like this is happening in a vacuum either. It's not like they could take something and attack it a thousand times over a thousand years and there'd be no change. You're talking about attacking something that on any day the manufacturers or the developers could issue a patch and the vulnerability you're trying to go after could be sealed, right? Sure, so long as the manufacturer is aware of the fact that the vulnerability exists. Right. So you're talking about an organization that was willing to put intense time and resources into exploiting this vulnerability and doing so in a time frame which was unknown because you never know when the developer is going to discover this vulnerability. Sure. That's an organization that does not care about how much money they spend. No, absolutely. There was absolutely an intense amount, and I keep going back to intense, there was an intense amount of resources put into this. This was not the work of a single person that went into this attack chain. I want to go back to one thing real quick here. So we talked about the 11,000 whatever lines of code in the JavaScript that led to the first kernel exploit. One of the articles you sent me talked about the fact that the code for the second kernel exploit, the one that happened at the same time that their tracks were being cleaned by the cleaner agent, that the code for that kernel exploit was also massive and contained very little in common with the first set of code. 
That's a lot of code to debug. Yeah, a lot of code to put together. And before you can even put together 11,000 lines of code that is meant to exploit something, you have to uncover what the exploitable avenue or method is first, right? So you have to do thorough testing and reverse engineering against the system itself to find something, to find some part of memory that you can execute code against or cause some sort of overflow in. You need to really spend a lot of time just even finding that little hole first before you can build this 11,000 line JavaScript wedge mm-hmm. to hammer into that hole and not just do that, but build a wedge that is able to be hammered in there quietly with the full intent of not being discovered. So again, if this was purely financially motivated and they wanted to get in, you target a large swath of people, you go in with violent and intense means to just break the door down and go in, smash and grab and leave. This was absolutely meant to flip open the lock on somebody's window, crawl inside, close the window behind them, mm-hmm. lock the window back up, and hide all the tracks that they've done so you can implant your little bug and then sneak back out through the window, close it, somehow lock it from the outside, sneak away again, and leave this little implanted device on the inside. I mean, this is like Mission Impossible like level stuff here. I mean, this was like really, really impressive. Yeah, I mean, I would recommend any of our listeners go back and listen to some of our first episodes of this podcast when we talked about how ransomware works because one of the things that we talked about in those episodes was how cyber criminals get some of the basic information they have. And you'll see, you'll understand listening to those episodes versus this one, what we're talking about here. And of course, whomever did this. Now, we do know that the Russian government has come out and blamed the NSA. Okay. That was going to happen anyways, yeah. Yeah. Is the NSA capable of doing this? Absolutely. Are the Russians capable of doing this? Absolutely. Chinese? Yes. Iranians? Possibly. North Koreans? Possibly. Although typically North Koreans have much more financial motivation. Exactly. And they're less crafty and they're less strategic. If they can't go in and grab finances in some fashion and go in and exploit Mm -hmm. something for financial means, typically then instead of deploying a quiet malware in order to maintain some persistence and maintain access, they would just go drop ransomware and just blow the whole thing out. Iran tends to be much more sabotage based. Israel tends to operate on the same wavelength. This does really seem to be a Five Eyes, Russia or China style operation. And there's quite frankly, from my point of view, nothing really that makes it more or less likely that it's any one of them. Yeah, I don't think that at this point anybody can still safely perform uh, any confident attribution, but I think that it's very easy at this point to probably be pretty confident in narrowing down onto a single hand who was the one behind this. Being able to narrow down further than that would probably be really challenging until there's a little bit more of a smoking gun that somebody's able to uncover. So eventually, someday, somebody may, just like with like the Shadow Brokers NSA exploit mm-hmm. drop from a while ago, if something like that comes out later where all of a sudden some group is found to have had the initial code behind some of this or documentation that leads back to this at that point we'll have a smoking gun until something like that occurs or until this gets used again and somebody's able to attribute it back and see where it came from and actually make a confident attribution i think this one will probably kind of sit in the shadows for a little while still i mean the one thing i will say is that whomever put this together was willing to use these exploits on specific targets within one of the best cybersecurity companies in the world. That tells me two things. Number one, and we've talked about this one at length, they were well-resourced and the resources that they spent on this were not a factor in whether they did this. But the second big thing, they were willing to allow these methods um, to be discovered. Or at least they had determined that whatever was at the end of this trail was 
finally worth the fact that this could potentially be discovered. So mm -hmm. otherwise, you would hang on to an attack chain like this until you've gotten to a point where the treasure at the end of the rainbow is really worth it, and you know that that pot is filled with gold. Because otherwise... And that you're going to get it, and that you're going to get the gold once you get there. Like, it's worth it times 100 for this to be discovered. And that's why they perform validation along the way. Because again, if this would have dropped onto, say, like, a low-level employee at Kaspersky, like, I'm not trying to offend anyone here, but like, maybe like an administrative assistant or like a janitor of the building or something like that. They didn't want to drop it on something that wasn't going to be worth it because it gives countermeasures an opportunity to detect something, to trigger something, mm -hmm. and to identify that something was happening. So they wanted to make sure that they were hitting the highest level of target that had access to whatever it was they were looking for. And so if this were researchers at Kaspersky, it could be people that had secure code access. It could be people that had access to systems or access to data or user lists or PII or something else that Kaspersky has that they weren't otherwise able to get through other means or that wasn't already made public through some sort of other attack. So they saw a loaded treasure chest at the end here, and they knew that by enacting this attack chain that there was obviously always going to be a chance that they were going to get caught. In this case, unfortunately for them and for this impressive attack chain, they did. But they went to extreme lengths to try to make sure they covered their tracks and... Unfortunately for them in this case, Kaspersky being filled with the high-level security researchers and the tools that they've got and the people they've got available to them, they were able to actually go back and track this back all the way back through to the initial intrusion vector, which was really, really impressive on the part of Kaspersky. So I really commend the people that broke this down and took the time to be able to reverse engineer this because it, there was a lot of effort put into this to make sure that it was not able to be tracked back this far. So the fact that they were able to just shows that you've got people on both sides of this fence that are very very skilled and mm -hmm. yeah very good at what they do yeah they all put those skills to work at the highest levels and mm -hmm. that's really what the future of cybersecurity, cyber war and everything is really coming to nowadays is they are bringing out their a game at all times to really just make sure that they're effective do we know what malware they dropped yeah there was a few different malware packages i think that were kind of identified it gets a little bit muddy right at the end of the chain because they put more focus on kind of describing the chain but the big point was they went through this whole chain to be able to drop any kind of malware that they thought was going to achieve their goals at the end of this. Yeah, I personally, just in hearing the lengths they were willing to go, I mean, unless we're talking about like end of the world level information, which I, you know, I already discussed my level of respect for Kaspersky research. I don't think Kaspersky had. Tells me that this was an attack that they were willing to give up because they have better ones. And that is, I can't tell how much that is. It's more terrifying or just the nerd in me fascinating. Um, but you have to know they're willing to lose this one because they sent it to attack an organization, probably among the a handful in the world that would have been capable of detecting it and tracing it back. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what things come out in the future here, because there's going to be more of this. There probably already is more of this out there in the world that just hasn't been identified properly or hasn't been targeted. Because again, if you target a non-cybersecurity type organization, some of this could just mm -hmm. live on the land for a long time without being detected until somebody finally notices something where it slips out of line and it triggers something it didn't intend to, or until somebody does a proper forensics breakdown of the device or something to that level. So I fully expect in the coming years, especially with all the elections and things this year, I expect maybe even by the end of this year, we probably see something else similar to this, if not more things 
similar to this coming out in the near future as the bars raise higher and higher from both sides. But thank God we keep putting things on technological systems that are protected by code that is increasingly written with less and less effective security controls because there's just too much code to control. Well, they do their best on keeping both you and I employed and they keep giving us more stuff to talk about on these episodes. <laughs> so uh, at least we have them to thank for that. No kidding. If you're interested in any more terrifying examples of what can happen in the world of cybersecurity, I'm going to direct you back to the Zero Day Exploit episode that Ryan recorded a few months back. There will be a link back to that in the blog post that attaches to it. We want to thank you for joining us today. And if there's anything about this episode that you have further questions on, please send us any comments on social media, or you can reach us through our website, www.fearlessparanoia.com. You can follow us on any of your favorite podcast platforms or systems. And if you believe there's anybody else out there that could benefit from this information, please go ahead and share that. That is how we get the word about this podcast out is through listeners who think that we are actually saying something worthwhile. We look forward to seeing you next time. We have some great stuff coming up to talk about. And for Fearless Paranoia, I'm Brian. And I'm Ryan. And we will see you next time. Bye.